I had been dimly aware for some time of a worrying noise, and when I lifted my eyes I saw the woodpile was gone, and the manager, aided by all the pilgrims, was shouting at me from the riverside. I slipped the book into my pocket. I assure you, to leave off reading was like tearing myself away from the shelter of an old and solid friendship. I started the lame engine ahead. It must be this miserable traitor, this intruder, exclaimed the manager, looking back malevolently at the place we had left. He must be English, I said. It will not save him from getting into trouble if he is not careful, muttered the manager darkly. I observed with assumed innocence that no man was safe from trouble in this world. The current was more rapid now. The steamer seemed at her last gasp. The stern wheel flopped languidly, and I caught myself listening on tiptoe for the next beat of the boat, for in sober truth I expected the wretched thing to give up every moment. It was like watching the last flickers of a life. But still we crawled. Sometimes I would pick out a tree a little way ahead to measure our progress toward Kurtzby, but I lost it invariably before we got abreast. To keep the eyes so long on one thing was too much for human patience. The manager displayed a beautiful resignation. I fretted and fumed and took to arguing with myself whether or no I would talk openly with Kurtz. But before I could come to any conclusion, it occurred to me that my speech or my silence, indeed any action of mine, would be a mere futility. What did it matter what anyone knew or ignored? What did it matter who was manager? One gets sometimes such a flash of insight. The essentials of this affair lay deep under the surface, beyond my reach, and beyond my power of meddling. Towards the evening of the second day, we judged ourselves about eight miles from Kurtz's station. I wanted to push on, but the manager looked grave and told me the navigation up there was so dangerous that it would be advisable, the sun being very low already, to wait where we were till next morning. Moreover, he pointed out, that if the warning to approach cautiously were to be followed, we must approach in daylight, not at dusk or in the dark. This was sensible enough. Eight miles meant nearly three hours steaming for us, and I could also see suspicious ripples at the upper end of the reach. Nevertheless, I was annoyed beyond expression at the delay, and most unreasonably, too, since one night more could not matter much after so many months. As we had plenty of wood, and caution was the word, I brought up in the middle of the stream. The reach was narrow, straight, with high sides like a railway cutting. The dusk came gliding into it long before the sun had set. The current ran smooth and swift, but a dumb immobility sat on the banks. The living trees, lashed together by creepers and every living bush in the undergrowth, might have been changed into stone, even to the slenderest twig, to the lightest leaf. It was not sleep. It seemed unnatural, like a state of trance. Not the faintest sound of any kind could be heard. You looked on, amazed, and began to suspect yourself of being deaf. Then the night came suddenly and struck you blind as well. About three in the morning some large fish leaped, and the loud splash made me jump as though a gun had been fired. When the sun rose there was a white fog, very warm and clammy 
and more blinding than the night. It did not shift or drive. It was just there, standing all round you like something solid. At eight or nine, perhaps, it lifted as a shutter lifts. We had a glimpse of the towering multitude of trees, of the immense matted jungle, with the blazing little ball of the sun hanging over it, all perfectly still. And then the white shutter came down again, smoothly, as if sliding in greased grooves. I ordered the chain, which we had begun to heave in, to be paid out again. Before it stopped running with a muffled rattle, a cry, a very loud cry, as of infinite desolation, soared slowly in the opaque air. It ceased. A complaining clamor, modulated in savage discords, filled our ears. The sheer unexpectedness of it made my hair stir under my cap. I don't know how it struck the others. To me, it seemed as though the mist itself had screamed. So suddenly, and apparently from all sides at once, did this tumultuous and mournful uproar arise. It culminated in a hurried outbreak of almost intolerably excessive shrieking, which stopped short, leaving us stiffened in a variety of silly attitudes and obstinately listening to the nearly as appalling and excessive silence. Good God, what is the meaning? stammered at my elbow one of the pilgrims, a little fat man with sandy hair and red whiskers who wore side-spring boots and pink pajamas tucked into his socks. Two others remained open-mouthed a whole minute, then dashed into the little cabin to rush out incontinently and stand darting scared glances with Winchesters at ready in their hands. What we could see was just the steamer we were on. Her outlines blurred as though she had been on the point of dissolving and a misty strip of water perhaps two feet broad around her. And that was all. The rest of the world was nowhere, as far as our eyes and ears were concerned, just nowhere, gone, disappeared, swept off without leaving a whisper or a shadow behind. I went forward and ordered the chain to be hauled in short so as to be ready to trip the anchor and move the steamboat at once if necessary. Will they attack? whispered an awed voice. We will all be butchered in this fog, murmured another. The faces twitched with the strain. The hands trembled slightly. The eyes forgot to wink. It was very curious to see the contrast of expressions of the white men and of the black fellows of our crew, who were as much strangers to that part of the river as we, though their homes were only eight hundred miles away. The whites, of course, greatly discomposed, had besides a curious look of being painfully shocked by such an outrageous row. The others had an alert, naturally interested expression. But their faces were essentially quiet, even those of the one or two who grinned as they hauled in the chain. Several exchanged short, grunting phrases, which seemed to settle the matter to their satisfaction. Their headman, a young broad-chested black, severely draped in dark blue fringed cloths with fierce nostrils and his hair all done up artfully in oily ringlets, stood near me. Aha, uh -huh, I said, just for good fellowship's sake. Catch him, he snapped, with a bloodshot widening of his eyes and a flash of sharp teeth. Catch him, give him to us. To you, huh? I asked. What would you do with him? Eat him, he said curtly, 
and leaning his elbow on the rail, looked out into the fog in a dignified and profoundly pensive attitude. I would no doubt have been properly horrified had it not occurred to me that he and his chaps must be very hungry, that they must have been growing increasingly hungry for at least this month past. They had been engaged for six months. I don't think a single one of them had any clear idea of time, as we at the end of countless ages have. They still belonged to the beginnings of time, had no inherited experience to teach them, as it were. And, of course, as long as there was a piece of paper written over in accordance with some farcical law or other made down the river, it didn't enter anybody's head to trouble how they would live. Certainly they had brought with them some rotten hippo meat, which couldn't have lasted very long anyway, even if the pilgrims hadn't, in the midst of a shocking hullabaloo, thrown a considerable quantity of it overboard. It looked like a high-handed proceeding, but it was really a case of legitimate self-defense. You can't breathe dead hippo, waking, sleeping, and eating, and at the same time keep your precarious grip on existence. Besides that, they had given them every week three pieces of brass wire, each about nine inches long, and the theory was that they were to buy their provisions with that currency in Riverside Villages. You can see how that worked. There were either no villages, or the people were hostile, or the director, who, like the rest of us, fed out of tins, with an occasional old he-goat thrown in, didn't want to stop the steamer for some more or less recondite reason. So unless they swallowed the wire itself, or made loops of it to snare fishes with, I don't see what good their extravagant salary could be to them. I must say, it was paid with a regularity worthy of a large and honorable trading company. For the rest, the only thing to eat, though it didn't look edible in the least, I saw in their possession was a few lumps of some stuff like half-cooked dough of a dirty lavender color they kept wrapped in leaves, and now and then swallowed a piece of, but so small that it seemed done more for the looks of the thing rather than any serious purpose of sustenance. Why, in the name of all the gnawing devils of hunger, they didn't go for us, they were thirty to five, and have a good tuck-in for once amazes me, now when I think of it. They were big, powerful men, with not much capacity to weigh the consequences. With courage, with strength, even yet, though their skins were no longer glossy and their muscles no longer hard. And I saw that something restraining, one of those human secrets that baffle probability, had come into play there. I looked at them with a swift quickening of interest not because it occurred to me that I might be eaten by them before very long, though I own to you that just then I perceived, in a new light, as it were, how unwholesome the pilgrims looked. And I hoped, yes, I positively hoped that my aspect was not so, what shall I say, so unappetizing, a touch of fantastic vanity which fitted well with the dream sensation that pervaded all my days at that time. Perhaps I had a little fever, too. One can't live with one's finger everlastingly on one's pulse. I had often a little fever, or a little touch of other things, the playful paw-strokes of the wilderness, the preliminary trifling before the more serious onslaught which came in due course. Yes, I looked at them, as you would on any human being, with a curiosity of their impulses, motives, capacities, weaknesses, when brought to the test of an inexorable, physical necessity. Restraint. What possible restraint? 
Was it superstition, disgust, patience, fear, or some kind of primitive honor? No fear can stand up to hunger. No patience can wear it out. Disgust simply does not exist where hunger is. And, as to superstition, beliefs, and what you may call principles, they are less than chaff in a breeze. Don't you know the devilry of lingering starvation? It's exasperating torment? It's black thoughts? It's somber and brooding ferocity? Well, I do. It takes a man all his inborn strength to fight hunger properly. It's really easier to face bereavement, dishonor, and the perdition of one's soul than this kind of prolonged hunger. Sad, but true. And these chaps, too, had no earthly reason for any kind of scruple, restraint. I would just as soon have expected restraint from a hyena prowling amongst the corpses of a battlefield. But there was the fact facing me, the fact dazzling to be seen, like the foam on the depths of the sea, like a ripple on an unfathomable enigma, a mystery greater, when I thought of it, than the curious, inexplicable note of desperate grief in this savage clamor that had swept by us on the river bank behind the blind whiteness of the fog. Two pilgrims were quarreling in hurried whispers as to which bank, left, no, no, how can you? Right, 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 of course. It is very serious, said the manager's voice behind me. I would be desolated if anything should happen to Mr. Kurtz before we came up. I looked at him, and had not the slightest doubt he was sincere. He was just the kind of man who would wish to preserve appearances. That was his restraint. But when he muttered something about going on at once, I did not even take the trouble to answer him. I knew, and he knew, that it was impossible. Were we to let go of our hold on the bottom, we would be absolutely in the air, in space. We wouldn't be able to tell where we were going to, whether up or downstream or across, till we fetched against one bank or another. And then we wouldn't know at first which it was. Of course, I made no move. I had no mind for a smash-up. You couldn't imagine a more deadly place for a shipwreck. Whether we drowned at once or not, we were sure to perish speedily in one way or another. I authorize you to take all the risks, he said, after a short silence. I refuse to take any, I said shortly, which was just the answer he expected, though its tone might have surprised him. Well, I must defer to your judgment. You are captain, he said with marked civility. I turned my shoulder to him in sign of my appreciation, and looked into the fog. How long would it last? It was the most hopeless lookout. The approach to this Kurtz, grubbing for ivory in the wretched bush, was beset by as many dangers as though he had been an enchanted princess sleeping in a fabulous castle. Will they attack, do you think? asked the manager in a confidential tone. I did not think they would attack for several obvious reasons. The thick fog was one. If they left the bank in their canoes, they would get lost in it, as we would be if we attempted to move. Still, I had also judged the jungle of both banks quite impenetrable. And yet eyes were in it, eyes that had seen us. The riverside bushes were certainly very thick, but the undergrowth behind was evidently penetrable. However, during the short lift I had seen no canoes anywhere in the reach, certainly not abreast of the steamer. 
but what made the idea of attack inconceivable to me was the nature of the noise, of the cries we had heard. They had not been the fierce character of boding immediate hostile intention. Unexpected, wild, and violent as they had been, they had given me an irresistible impression of sorrow. The glimpse of the steamboat had for some reason filled those savages with unrestrained grief. The danger, if any, I expounded, was from our proximity to a great human passion let loose. Even extreme grief may ultimately vent itself in violence, but more generally it takes the form of apathy. You should have seen the pilgrims stare. They had no heart to grin, or even to revile me. But I believe they thought me gone mad, with, with fright, maybe. I delivered a regular lecture. My dear boys, it was no good bothering. Keep a lookout? Well, you may guess I watched the fog for the signs of lifting as a cat watches a mouse. But for anything else, our eyes were of no more use to us than if we had been buried miles deep in a heap of cotton wool. It felt like it, too. Choking, warm, stifling. Besides, all I said, though it sounded extravagant, was absolutely true in fact. What we afterward alluded to as an attack was really an attempt at repulse. The action was very far from being aggressive. It was not even defensive. In the usual sense, it was undertaken under the stress of desperation, and in its essence was purely protective. It developed itself, I should say, two hours after the fog lifted, and its commencement was at a spot, roughly speaking, about a mile and a half below Kurtz's station. We had just floundered and flopped around a bend, when I saw an islet, a mere grassy hummock of bright green, in the middle of the stream. It was the only thing of the kind. But as we opened the reach more, I perceived it was the head of a long sandbank, or rather a chain of shallow patches stretching down the middle of the river. They were discolored, just awash, and the whole lot was seen just under the water exactly as a man's backbone is seen running down the middle of his back under the skin. Now, as far as I did see, I could go to the right or to the left of this. I didn't know either channel, of course. The banks looked pretty well alike. The depth appeared the same. But as I had been informed the station was on the west side, I naturally headed for the western passage. No sooner had we fairly entered it than I became aware it was much narrower than I had supposed. To the left of us there was the long, uninterrupted shoal, and to the right a high, steep bank, heavily overgrown, with bushes, Above the bush the trees stood in serried ranks. The twigs overhung the current thickly, and from distance to distance a large limb of some tree projected rigidly over the stream. It was then well on in the afternoon. The face of the forest was gloomy, and a broad strip of shadow had already fallen on the water. In this shadow we steamed up, very slowly, as you may imagine. I sheared her well inshore, the water being deepest near the bank, as the sounding pole informed me. One of my hungry and forbearing friends was sounding in the bows just below me. This steamboat was exactly like a decked scow. On the deck there were two little teakwood houses with doors and windows. The boiler was in the fore-end, and the machinery right astern. Over the hole there was a light roof supported on stanchions. 
The funnel projected through that roof, and in front of the funnel a small cabin built of light planks served for a pilot house. It contained a couch, two camp stools, a loaded Martini Henry leaning in one corner, a tiny table, and the steering wheel. It had a wide door in front and a broad shutter on each side. All these were always thrown open, of course. I spent my days perched up there on the extreme fore-end of that roof, before the door. At night I slept, or tried to, on the couch. An athletic black, belonging to some coast tribe, and educated by my poor predecessor, was the helmsman. He sported a pair of brass earrings, wore a blue cloth wrapper from waist to the ankles, and thought all the world of himself. He was the most unstable kind of fool I had ever seen. He steered with no end of swagger while you were by. But if he lost sight of you, he became instantly the prey of an abject funk, and would let that cripple of a steamboat get the upper hand of him in a minute. I was looking down at the sounding pole, and feeling much annoyed to see at each try a little more of it sticking out of that river, when I saw my poleman give up on the business suddenly and stretch himself flat on the deck without even taking the trouble to haul his pole in. He kept hold on it, though, and it trailed in the water. At the same time, the fireman, whom I could also see below me, sat down abruptly before his furnace and ducked his head. I was amazed. Then I had to look at the river mighty quick because there was a snag in the fairway. Sticks. Little sticks were flying about. Thick. They were whizzing before my nose, dropping below me, striking behind me against my pilot house. All this time the river, the shore, the woods were very quiet, perfectly quiet. I could only hear the heavy splashing thump of the stern wheel and the patter of these things. We cleared the snag clumsily. Arrows, by Jove! We were being shot at! I stepped in quickly to close the shutter on the land side. That fool helmsman, his hands on the spokes, was lifting his knees high, stamping his feet, champing his mouth like a reined-in horse. Cotton found him, and we were staggering within ten feet of the bank. I had to lean right out to swing the heavy shutter, and I saw a face amongst the leaves on the level of my own looking at me, very fierce and steady. And then suddenly, as though a veil had been removed from my eyes, I made out, deep in the tangled gloom, naked breasts, arms, legs, glaring eyes. The bush was swarming with human limbs in movement, glistening of bronze color. The twigs shook and swayed and rustled. The arrows flew out of them, and then the shutter came to. Steer her straight, I said to the helmsman. He held his head rigid, face forward, but his eyes rolled. He kept on lifting and setting down his feet gently. His mouth foamed a little. Keep quiet, I said in a fury. I might just as well have ordered a tree not to sway in the wind. I darted out. Below me there was a great scuffle of feet on the iron deck. Confused exclamation. A voice screamed. Can you turn back? I caught sight of a V-shaped ripple in the water ahead. What? Another snag? A fusillade burst out under my feet. The pilgrims had opened up with their Winchesters, and were simply squirting lead into that bush. A deuce of a lot of smoke came up, and drove slowly forward. I swore at it. Now I couldn't see the ripple, or the snag either. I stood in the doorway, peering, 
and the arrows came in swarms. They might have been poisoned, but they looked as though they wouldn't kill a cat. The bush began to howl. Our woodcutters raised a warlike whoop. The report of a rifle just at my back deafened me. I glanced over my shoulder, and the pilot house was yet full of noise and smoke when I made a dash at the wheel. The fool nigger had dropped everything to throw the shutter open and let off with that Martini Henry. He stood before the wide opening, glaring, and I yelled at him to come back, while I straightened the sudden twist out of that steamboat. There was no room to turn, even had I wanted to. The snag was somewhere very near ahead in that confounded smoke. There was no time to lose, so I just crowded her into the bank, right into the bank, where I knew the water was deep. We tore slowly along the overhanging bushes in a whirl of broken twigs and flying leaves. The fusillade below stopped short, as I foreseen it would when the squirts got empty. I threw my head back to a glinting whiz that traversed the pilot house, in at one shutter hole and out the other. Looking past that mad helmsman, who was shaking the empty rifle and yelling at the shore, I saw vague forms of men running bent double, leaping, gliding, distinct, incomplete, evanescent. Something big appeared in the air before the shutter. The rifle went overboard, and the man stepped back swiftly, looked at me over his shoulder in an extraordinary, profound, familiar manner, and fell upon my feet. The side of his head hit the wheel twice, and the end of what appeared a long cane clattered round and knocked over a little camp stool. It looked as though, after wrenching that thing from somebody ashore, he had lost his balance in the effort. The thin smoke had blown away. We were clear of the snag, and looking ahead, I could see in another hundred yards or so I would be free to sheer off away from the bank. But my feet felt so very warm and wet that I had to look down. The man had rolled on his back and stared straight up at me. Both his hands clutched that cane. It was the shaft of a spear that, either thrown or lunged through the opening, had caught him in the side just below the ribs. The blade had gone in out of sight after making a frightful gash. My shoes were full. A pool of blood lay very still, gleaming dark red under the wheel. His eyes shone with an amazing luster. The fusillade burst out again. He looked at me anxiously, gripping the spear like something precious, with an air of being afraid I would try to take it away from him. I had to make an effort to free my eyes from his gaze to attend to the steering. With one hand I felt above my head for the line of the steam whistle, and jerked out screech after screech hurriedly. The tumult of angry and warlike yells was checked instantly. And then from the depths of the woods went out such a tremulous and prolonged wail of mournful fear and utter despair as may be imagined to follow the flight of the last hope from earth. There was a great commotion in the bush. The shower of arrows stopped. A few dropping shots rang out sharply. Then silence, in which the languid beat of the stern wheel came plainly to my ears. I put the helm hard a starboard at the moment when the pilgrim in pink pajamas, very hot and agitated, appeared in the doorway. The manager sends me, he began in an official tone, and stopped short. Good God, he said, glaring at the wounded man. We two whites stood over him, and his lustrous and inquiring glance enveloped us both. I declare it looked as though he would presently put to us some questions in an understandable language. But he died without uttering a sound.
without moving a limb, without twitching a muscle. Only in the very last moment, as though in response to some sign we could not see, to some whisper we could not hear, he frowned heavily, and that frown gave to his black death mask an inconceivably somber, brooding, and menacing expression. The luster of inquiring glance faded swiftly into vacant glassiness. Can you steer? I asked the agent eagerly. He looked very dubious, but I made a grab at his arm, and he understood at once I meant him to steer whether or no. To tell you the truth, I was morbidly anxious to change my shoes and socks. He is dead, murmured the fellow, immensely impressed. No doubt about it, said I, tugging like mad at the shoelaces, and by the way, I suppose Mr. Kurtz is dead as well by this time. 